because our mascot is a tiger, you know, so she roars, right? Anyway, um, at first, I didn't want to go because uh, they invite, or at least invited me, well before October. Um, but then, like, a week or so, like, something around there, around that, before the deadline... I felt like, oh, I really have to go. <laughs> because I guess I actually opened the invitation and I read the list of, you know, events and people coming. And I was like, oh, this actually is really interesting. And you don't know me, maybe, but <clears throat> I actually live uh, like 20 to 30 minutes away from where I went to college. So it's not really like I had some of the same issues as like some other people who wanted to attend the conference because they had to deal with like, you know, airplane travel, booking hotels, different things like that. And for me, it literally, you know, it would have been just a matter of like driving down <laughs> on the highway where I live to Princeton, getting there, parking in the parking lot that I always park in whenever I visit Princeton. And that would have been it. Then I could just go home every night. like So it wouldn't have been a big thing. So it's not like I didn't want to go when I said before I didn't want to go. It's not like I didn't want to go because of like the headache that that can be sometimes. I didn't want to go just because like... I don't know. <laughs> um, my relationship with Princeton. Um... Yeah, I just, I guess I didn't feel a reason, a, mo a strong enough motivation to go, um, which may sound very, like, vague and mysterious, but, you know, why? Oh, like, you may be thinking, oh, it's Princeton, like, why wouldn't you want to go to an all-female conference? You know, the school only just started accepting females in the 1970s, even though they started, you know... When did Princeton start? In the 1700s. <clears throat> so, you know, it's not like it's like a all-everyone conference where it's like all the men back for decades and decades and centuries. And then, <laughs> right, it's literally just going back like we're in 2018, going back like 50 years. So it's not even like it would have been that many people. Anyway, I decided to go. And the thing is, like, I really wanted to bring my mother um, but they were predicting, like, record attendance, so they are like, oh, you can only bring yourself, so I was like, oh, great. Still decided to go anyway, and I'm kind of the person that, like, I mean, now anyway, before, like, 
I wasn't, but now I can show up to a place not knowing anyone there and like that won't bother me. But before my life, if I had something to go to, like I would at least, even if I wasn't going with someone, I would at least want to know that there was like one person minimum there that I knew. (laughs) So that if I ever felt like that attack of like social anxiety or something, I could just go leech onto them. You know what I'm saying? For the duration of the event. So I don't feel like, oh, who do I talk to? What do I do? Where do I put my hands? Like, what? Like, what? What? Anyway, I went. um, And it was good. It was good. Um, You know, there were a lot of interesting conversations. I was really interested in, like, the entrepreneurship conversations education there were different topics but the ones that i would you know that i really wanted to um the the talks that i really wanted to go to because basically the whole conference was talks right and like these talks had like panels of speakers so the talks that i really wanted to go to were the ones like about like entrepreneurship education um you know the job hunt, like different like post-grad young entrepreneur, young female entrepreneur, young minority entrepreneur problems. Like that's what spoke to me and still speaks to me, you know? So that's pretty much, this is me saying that the coming episodes that will be about or be from the She Wars conference those basically will be the topics. So if you already know, like, oh, I don't care about any of those things, um, and I don't even like Princeton, then you can tune out. Like, that's fair. But if you're interested in any of those things that I just mentioned, I mean, stay tuned, because I plan, hopefully, hopefully, inshallah, to release, you know, these episodes on a weekly basis, because I recorded so much. And literally what I would do it's not advanced. I would pull up my phone. <laughs> I would pull up my phone upon hearing something interesting. Okay. And just record right in the room that I was in. And, you know, looking back, I'm just wondering like why I had no like shyness about this because like some of the rooms I was in really all of them, maybe except one, I'm pretty sure all of them. I'm the only like hijabi. So it's like, kind of people are staring at me already anyway but I you know Princeton is not like um I mean from what I've experienced weird about visibly Muslim people like they're fine I mean there was one woman staring at me a lot (laughs) um in one of the talks and I'm just like yeah I know what's on my head like but she wasn't staring like in a mean way she just was like oh I didn't know like, it's so good, like, that you are here. Like, that's kind of what her face was kind of saying. Like, wow. You know, how unexpected, but, like, kind of refreshing. Kind of. That's, like, the look. That's what I was reading. Um, could have read that completely wrong, you know. <laughs> um, but, yeah. So, basically, this episode, right, that this recording... 
um, is on will be, will have, will be made up of, composed of, you know, excerpts from different talks. So yeah, basically that's what this is going to be composed of. Yeah. Thank you for listening. If you really listened up until now and didn't just, you know, forward the podcast player to the actual uh, episode. Which episode is this? This is, um, this would be...
I had believed that she should be part of the working world. Without having a moment in a story that thought more than one about being treated differently because she's a woman. In one of the classes I had here at Princeton, the professor had been giving this lecture for, I'm sure, close to 40 years. And um, every time he got to the point in his lecture where he was going to tell an off-color joke, he would stop. He would look at me <laughs> and try to fix the joke. <laughs> and the guy would go and look at me and stick like And there are more. You can't be a professional lawyer, even today, whether it's in law and medicine anything without having a moment where someone is going to treat you differently because you You can't deny it without minimizing the fact that it can leave its moments of it could be stars and it can affect the way you feel about some people and your interactions with them. But I do think Elena is right that even at the very beginning of my career, there were so few women in positions of power. And I had very few mentors that I could look to to guide my development. There were always men of freedom. And that's what I call women today. Men who understood that equality had to be proved to practice. And men who mentored me and who supported my career and helped me along. And there are still those people out there. And so, um, I think it's important for all of us, for women, to understand that no matter how hostile an environment may seem, you have to look around for those people who will come and stand with you and by because they are there. And so, um, I guess my point remains. We still have a long way to go parodying an old cigarette ad. Um, but it's a lot shorter distance than I thought. So I want to go back to the court and the uh, moment Uh, somehow, I'm off the bread, uh, even if not always. 
extension of the terribly polarized political process and environment that we live in. And, uh, you know, this is a challenge. There, um, I think people too often don't realize that we agree on a lot. If you look at the court's caseload as a whole, you'll find that about half the time we're unanimous. Um, another big chunk of the time, we have very lopsided votes. Uh, but there are some issues, some important issues that people care about, in which the court is more closely divided and tends to be divided along lines that you might predict if you look at uh, who nominated. I think it's been an extremely important thing for the court that in the last nearly 30 years, started with Justice O'Connor and, uh, and continuing with Justice Kennedy, there has been a person who people found the center or people couldn't predict in that sort of way, and that's enabled the court to look as though it was not owned by one side or another. And uh, uh, impartial and neutral and fair. And it's not so clear that, uh, you know, I think going forward, uh, uh, that sort of middle position, uh, you know, it's not so clear whether we'll have it. And that puts, uh, I think, uh, uh, all of us need to be aware of that, every single one of us, and to realize how precious. Uh, the court's uh, legitimacy is, you know, we don't, we don't have money, we don't have uh, any money, the only way we can get people to uh, do what we say that they should do is because people respect us and respect our parents. And uh, especially in this time where the rest of the political environment is so divided, every single one of us has a about what it is that provides support for this legitimacy, and uh, as, you know, to think about how we can be not so politically divided as some of the other political institutions in the nation. I agree fully with everything that I'm going to say. And 
and they look very broad in terms to the generations that follow, give those words meaning. And so we've got these two sets off between originalists and other people. And we've got plain meaning and people who say no word is plain. Because every word has to be read in context, and context shades the meaning of everything. And so um, those academic discussions have often led to outcomes that some people can predict. Not always, but some. And when the political parties adopted that language as their own, they superimposed that on the court. So originalists get identified as the choice of a certain group of politicians, not originalists, the choice of another group, of a different party. And I think that that institution has hurt the court a lot, and maybe too, you do so. I do think that there are structures within the court, not the least of which is our modern understanding among, I believe, now justices, that we have to rise above partisanship in our personal relationships, that we have to treat each other with respect and dignity and with a sense of uh, amicability that the rest of the world doesn't often share. A way of relationship with Justice Scalia is well known.
It's just a matter of us where the constant repeat players. Every case is going to be the same kind of us. And if you hold grudges or if you um, uh, have a bad relationship with one of your colleagues, then the next case and the next case and the next case, you have a, a, not much of a chance of persuading that colleague to come along with what you think is the right thing to do. So, so we all have a kind of vested interest in having good relations with each other. If 
to each ad and offer help. Um, he is exceedingly caring. Um, whenever anyone, myself, I speak for myself, but I know he does it for everybody. If you're ill, if you've had someone die for a man, this is the first of flowers that are coming. It's the first call that's made to see if you're okay. Um, he and I had kids that lived together on our But I know that inside of him, there is a goodness that I can admire. I disagree with him on everything else. <laughs> but I think we can approach people in that way and understand that the difference of opinion doesn't necessarily grant you and people there's more space to talk. There's more space to engage. And certainly more space for willingness to compromise. Uh, and, and, you know, the master is probably Tony Kennedy. Tony Kennedy, I think, spends all of his time on the best in his times. And I think that's why.
this is what the evidence proves, but that it's also their obligation to convince. He said that to me, and I did not lose another case. And I think I tried for the cases there. I had a couple of opportunities, <coughs> and I've had a couple of less than top charges, but I never lost another case. Now, that doesn't mean I when I got back, um, you have to marshal the evidence. You have to prove the case. But you have to convince a reader of the moral justice in your position. And I think that it, not every case requires that. You know, we've got this more than 50% of cases that um, that we agree upon. And I, if I wrote that way for all 50 of those, I never get it that it was for it again. But we do, because we write in certain ways when we have, we're trying to draw our worlds. But when there's something that you understand to be fundamental, and if you want to have people understand your position and what you're arguing, then I do think that explaining it in a way that people can feel is great. I probably don't do it more than once or twice a year. Because it has to be that fundamental case that people need to understand. And to understand that the choice is right. Um, and so for me, it's not hard to come to those moments. I do think that writing so people understand your cases or your position is always important. Writing the most complex cases, simple ways, is terribly important. But I would tell you, even though we feel hard at that, I bet the majority of people never do it. They read the, the quotes in the New York Times. Summaries in some other form. I, uh, if I were to ask this room how many of you have read a Supreme Court case cover to cover, I bet that two thirds of you never have. And so, um, the hopes that the person who does take it out will understand. And the hope that if what you're explaining is exceptional, that they will be more than they want. Thank you. 
Thank you. 